0: All right, Daniel chapter 1, get out your bibliotecas. Yeah, get out those libraries. Here we go. So we uh, chatted this morning. When I say we chatted, I guess I was the only one talking. Uh, But we listened to me talk about uh, the notion that we all... Worship something. We all have a God. We all have have kind of walked into a scenario into a conversation about what is of ultimate importance to us. And today we're going to look at Daniel as he starts to navigate Babylon, and we'll have a conversation tonight just briefly about what does a what does a Babylonian worldview look like. Uh, and if if how many of you guys have some have some kind of YouTube video that you watch when you just want to have a good cry? You know what I'm talking about? Like how many of y'all? are like me where if you ever watch like a soldier coming home video, you just lose your mind, right? I just, (laughs) you put like a little Alanis Morissette over like a guy returning home or a woman returning home from Baghdad and I'm just like a puddle of myself. Another thing that I love is, have you guys seen the videos where the guy, uh, like a guy or a girl is colorblind, then they get like these new glasses where they can see color for the first time? And they're like, you know, walking around in their black and white world. And then they put them on. And it's always like, you know, some older guy that gets me the most because they're trying to be held together. And they're like, oh, are those balloons? And they're like, those are balloons. I, like, I love balloons, right? Uh, that, I think that's kind of the conversation that we're having tonight. The conversation that we're having tonight is we have bought into what we call a worldview. A worldview is essentially this idea that we all have a story that we tell ourselves that makes our lives livable. You have a story that you've told yourself about the four most important questions that human beings can ask of themselves that everyone does all the time. And how you answer those questions completes what we call your worldview. It's how you see things. It's Think about those glasses that you put on that allows you to see color. Some of us aren't even aware of it, but every one of us has lenses by which we see the world through. We all have lenses that we see other people through. We all have lenses by which we perceive the church through. We all have lenses by which we watch celebrities through. We have told ourselves something that makes our life livable. It's the way we define ourselves. It's how we justify our existence. It gives us worth and value. It's how we answer life's biggest questions. And what we're talking about tonight is as Daniel walks into Babylon, he understands something to its fullest extent. Babylon has an agenda. Babylon, and again, in scripture, Babylon is used as any godless culture, and that's what we are in America. We are a godless culture. If you're sitting in this chapel right now, to remember a few things. As you sit in this chapel right now, The majority of all people in America think that what you're doing is, by its very nature, bigotry. Christianity used to be, if you put that you were a Christian on, like, your job resume, people would be like, oh, they're probably a good person. And Christianity hasn't changed, right? Right? There's not like a revised, like version 2.0, God talks, right? Version 3.0, return of the Christ, right? Like that's, (laughs) there isn't a new version that's come out. And yet for thousands of years, Christianity was seen as, you go back to the very first uh, histories and people were talking about it. And not just Christians. Hostile, secular people who hated Jesus were talking about Christians. Pliny the Younger, um, uh, Meribar Sarapian. These are historical people who said, Christians aren't afraid of death. They freak us out. They care for one another. They take care of each other. They love the poor and the oppressed, right? At, At one point, the only people that were willing to go into hostile nations and care for those that no one would even touch were believers in Jesus, The Bible hasn't changed. The call hasn't changed. But what has changed is culture has become slightly and significantly over the years more Babylonian. The same belief system that people had thousands of years ago, the text hasn't changed. Christian orthodoxy hasn't improved. There is no need to go and re-examine the text. If you learn to read and write in Hebrew, Greek, Akkadian, and Aramaic, you will find the exact same text here that we found Thousands of years ago when we found the original extant copies of the New Testament, followed by the Dead Sea Scrolls, followed by the very things that John wrote, the very things that that Peter wrote through the the Gospel of Mark, it's all the same. And we enter into the conversation then through this lens of saying, well, then what, what took place? As a Christian, I get nervous about telling people in culture that I follow Jesus not because I'm afraid to have a Christian conversation with them. I believe wholeheartedly as someone who has sought the evidence for the existence of God, the evidence for the truth of Scripture, for the miraculous things like the resurrection's proof, I can prove to almost anyone, if they're willing to sit down and have a conversation with me, without becoming indignant, that the Scripture is God's holy word, that Jesus was who he said he was, that the God of the universe is the most... Um, intellectually robust idea in all of the ideas about where the universe came from. I think I I can convince anyone of that if they're willing to come with a default empty slate. But the reason that I'm nervous is because we now live in Babylon. There was this, this really unique aspect that took place when people started settling the West. And they all wanted hats because it's out west, a little bit hotter out here, right? So there's a lot more sunshine and things like that and the Dust Bowl, all that other jazz, right? And so as, as these journalists would go from town to town, they noticed something really interesting. Every town they went to, one person in the town was crazy. Guess who the person in the town, in every town was that was crazy? He was the person in charge of making hats. In every town they went to, the hatter was crazy. If you've ever seen Alice in Wonderland, you have noticed there's a character called the Mad Hatter. Okay? I'm pretty sure someone on shrooms made up Alice in Wonderland, but that's besides the point right now. Because when you watch that movie, it's kind of like, what is happening? But that's besides the point. The Mad Hatter comes from this true idea that the hatter of each town, they realized that a really great way of keeping water out of the brims of hats was to seal them with mercury. So a guy in every town would be like, I wanna make hats. So he would get a supply of mercury and he would put it on his hands and he would rub it into the brims of the hats. We only found out later that if you work with mercury enough, it begins to seep into your pores. And guess what happens if you get mercury inside your system? It makes you go crazy. So it isn't that crazy people like to make hats. It's that making hats makes people crazy. The reason I'm telling you this is a lot of us have to recognize that we, just like hatters, have been consuming culture so often that a lot of the things that we're gonna talk about tonight, you don't even know that you believe. We're not even aware of it. Like there's this old, uh, it's it's kind of this um, parable that's told where it says there's two fish swimming in the ocean together. And a third fish swims by and says, morning boys, how's the water today? And the two fish are like, what's water? Think about it. Do you think fish are aware? Do you think they're like, the water feels nice today? Or, or do you think fish have any, con- I don't even know. Besides Finding Nemo, that's like the only thing I know about fish is what I've learned from Ellen DeGeneres and Finding Nemo. Like That's like the extent of my knowledge of fish. But I would say that fish probably aren't aware that they live in water until you take them out of it, right? You take a fish out of water and it's like, right? It's, I don't, I couldn't talk because fish don't talk. But I'm, they flip and stuff. You take a fish out of water, then it becomes acutely aware that it lives in water. It's like, where's that water stuff, right? It's gills are all, or however gills are, right? You've seen a fish. My concern is that we are kind of the same way. We're not even aware of the narrative that we believe. We, 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 we live in Babylon so much that we're, we're not aware of how Babylon has seeped into our skin, into our pores. And as Christians, we kind of then participate in this weird voodoo religion where we got a little bit of Bible and a whole lot of Babylon. We got a little bit of what Yahweh thinks about us and a whole lot of what Babylon thinks about us. The way it's put in John chapter 12 that Jesus is speaking to a group of people and he says, my concern is that you care more about what people think about you than what God thinks about you. See, the ways of Babylon are really tantalizing and they're tangible, they're tactile, they're real. You can feel it. You can sense when you're winning in Babylon. You can see success, material success in Babylon. And the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom. And sometimes our flesh, which is stained in sin, prefers material, temporary, broken, messed up, molting and molding and gross success that we can actually touch and feel over the true success of being found in who we are in Christ. That's the truth of our status. That's the truth of my status. I'm not coming here as like, as a pastor who has life figured out, let me tell you what it's like to live in God's kingdom. Heathen, sinner, sinner. Dead, yeah, right? Like, I, that's not, I'm not. I'm coming to you as a beggar, coming to another beggar, trying to help you to know where I found bread. I messed up. I constantly care. Like, this is the truth. I'll have moments this week on this stage where I care more that you think that what I say is intriguing and entertaining than that you care about how beautiful Jesus is. Why? Because I'm a dumpster fire. Do you understand that? Like, because I, there's, you just can't get around it. And for the beauty of God's grace, he uses dumpster fires like me to give a perfect message, even through an imperfect messenger. God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks because that's, that's the only option he has. <laughs> there are no people who are perfectly righteous to give a message except unless you're Jesus and he, his job's done here on planet Earth, okay? Okay. So, for now, mm, that was powerful. <laughs> the homeschool kid speaks <laughs> technically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. homeschool kids. Yeah. Hey, keep it down, or I'll tell your mom. I'm gonna tell your mom you're watching The Simpsons the other day. How about that? I bet you were. I bet you watched Family Guy too. Sinner, 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 sinner. (laughs) Just kidding. Oh, just playing with you. Oh, man. All right. Speaking of Babylon. All right, here we go. But for real, on repentance night, I would stand if I were you. Here we go. (laughs) What's your name? Chaz. Chaz? I thought it was going to be like Noah or something. (laughs) Moses. All right. (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. We're going to leave Chaz alone. Here's what it says. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Okay? Okay. So we have a situation where Nebuchadnezzar has besieged the whole whole area of Jerusalem. He's taken it over. The Lord, it says this, the Lord delivers Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Verse 3 says this, then the king ordered Ashpenaz. That's a funny name, isn't it? Remember when I talked about this morning that this is not some fictitious group of stories and fables? I've got more nerdy archaeology for all seven of you who care. I know Chaz does. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, nerds unite. Okay, I wanna show you this uh, right here on the screen. Okay, so it's a rock. <laughs> it's not just a boulder, it's a rock. All right. So this is, <laughs> this is called the Nebuchadnezzar Stele, and it's found in the area where this whole event takes place, that's actually a historical picture of King Nebuchadnezzar and that's the inscription below that talks about who he is. The name Nebuchadnezzar says, one who worships or praises Nebo, which is a foreign god. And that's right here. There's a long time where historians believed that the story of Daniel was fictitious and then we started digging and this is what we found. Uh, On top of that, we also found this. When I say we, I mean archeologists did. Now that might be nothing to you, but in reality, what that is, is that is a temple document of who entered into the temple and who gave tithes during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you look really closely, if you're able to read this language, you are gonna see that the third person on this list is a man named Ashpenaz. So we found a rock that has this guy's name on it, In scripture, and for thousands of years, it was lost to history, and the biblical account once again is verified by archaeology, in the very temple of Nebuchadnezzar, we have found this guy's name. Maybe you don't care? I do. And so I'm going to show you rocks, because they're beautiful. Okay? There we go. Yes! I'll shut up now. Here we go. Here's what it says. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service." So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he says, we're gonna take over Jerusalem and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take the best and the brightest and the strongest and the most fit for service and we're gonna teach them to be Babylonians, right? This is, um, this is essentially what uh, we would, it's like eugenics. We're gonna take everyone who's the best and we're going to, this is, I mean, it's awful. It's saying that certain people have more intrinsic value than other people, and th- this, is, this is what the kings would do. When you don't have an actual moral value system that says that all people are created in the image of God, but rather they're created in the image of Nebo, you can start making different scales. Some people are worth more, some people are worth less. Some people have this status, some people have this status. In the kingdom of God, everyone bears an image of the Almighty, so how dare you ever say that anyone has any less value than that, because they're all God's children, And I'll tell you what, you want to start a fight with me, you come and say that one of my kids has less value than the other one. I will drop kick you. I have no problem going back to prison. Do you understand me? Yeah, Chaz, prison. Prison's where bad people go. Okay, here we go. And here's a plan. Okay, so Babylon has a strategy. The strategy is, the question becomes, how do we take these Yahweh people? These people who worship the God of the Bible, the people, like these are the people who have been rescued out of the arm of slavery in the Exodus. These are the let my people go out in the desert. 10 commandments, 10 plagues moving through promised land, Canaan, having honey and milk flowing from everywhere. God's been faithful to them and faithful to them and they keep rebelling against him and rebelling against him. And they finally been given over to the Babylonians. These people though, are a religious, powerful, historied, important, and very culturally sensitive group. How do we take the strongest, best, most powerful ones who must know who Yahweh is, how do we get them to be Babylonian? This is a strategy that is a tale as old as time. If you want to convince someone to change the way that they were brought up, there's a strategy to it. And Babylon is smart. Nebuchadnezzar is a genius. He comes up with a simple plan. First, I need to take them out of their context. I need to isolate them. I can't keep them where they were. I have to take them out into a place where they're surrounded by Babylon. They need to see Babylonian things. They need to hear Babylonian slogans. They need to smell Babylonian smells. What does that mean? No one knows, but it's provocative and it gets people going. Okay. This is Babylon. Okay. Babylon. We need them to spend money in Babylon. We need them to have the currency of Babylon in their pocket. We need them to think like Babylonians. So, After taking them out of Jerusalem, they bring them into Babylon and they start this process of indoctrination. For three years, they are going to be assigned and graded on their knowledge and their proficiency in Babylon. So we're going to train them and teach them the way that we think. Then we're going to change their names. Their names went from Uh, Yahweh is blessed, or God, uh, who is like God, and they change them to names that match their pagan gods, like Nebo is God, and Baal is king. So they're going to indoctrinate them, teach them only Babylonian things, they're going to change their names, and then the crescendo, the kicker, is they're going to give them, this is what it says, verse 6, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them these new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Okay? Or Rakshak and Benny for short. Okay? But, here's what it says. But Daniel resolved. if If you treat your Bible like a life textbook, and I recommend that you do, making notes in it, that word is a really important word. I want you to circle the word resolved. Daniel resolved okay on on december 31st of every year it's a popular thing to sit around as the clock is moving closer to midnight and talk about your new year's resolutions okay this is where we get the word resolve from he and a new year's resolution is not made in january it's made in december and your new year's resolution has to do with what you're going to do and how you're going to respond in the future Daniel resolved on what he was going to do, think, act, eat, and drink ahead of time. If we wait to think, well, as soon as I get into Babylon, as soon as I enter into that college environment, as soon as I'm one-on-one with that person, as soon then I'll decide what I'm going to do, <laughs> your goose is cooked, man. The game's over. It doesn't work that way. People who want to follow and live in God's kingdom and not fall victim to Babylon have to decide ahead of time what they're gonna do when the pleasures of this world are served up to them on a silver platter. If you wait until you're hungry and the food is sitting in front of you to decide whether you're gonna indulge or reject, you're too late. So Daniel, ahead of time, knowing he's going to Babylon, spends probably many a night in transit. And how old is Daniel at this time? Probably in his teens years, anywhere from like 14 to 19 years old, okay? So if you think of some really old guy like, my name's Daniel, does anyone have a chair? I'd like to sit down. That's not him. He's you, He's potentially 15, 16, 17 years old. And he gets taken out of his homeland. He's brought into a foreign kingdom. And then they start feeding him all of the things that Babylonians loved. And Babylonians were not kosher people. They could eat whatever they wanted. They could spice it however they wanted. They could combine foods however they wanted. And so being a good Jewish guy, he would walk in there and go, that smells good. What is that, duck? I don't don't even know what duck tastes like. I just think it's, it's, it's of the things of fancy people. You know what I'm talking about? In the finer things club, they've got duck, okay? And so Daniel, but it says he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would then have my head because of you, right? Look, it's part of my plan to give you Babylonian food. It's part of the process. I take you out of your homeland. I isolate you. After I isolate you, I indoctrinate you and teach you what Babylon's all about until... I grade you on it, and I punish you if you don't know it. Then I start to feed you the, the food and the wine of Babylon. How could you reject Babylon at that point? Now, you're, you're subverting my tactics. You're not going to eat the food and drink the wine. They're going to have my head. i got to turn you into Babylonian somehow. And if I don't teach you to love Babylonian things, what is my, how am I ever going to get a hold of you? How am I going to get my hooks in you? How am I going to get my Babylonian appeal to you if I can't even feed you and can't even give you wine to drink. Daniel then said to the guard who was appointed over him, "We'll test your servants for 10 days. Don't give us anything but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he throws a gauntlet down. We will eat food, vegetables, and drink water, and you can eat all the royal food that you want. And didn't you want us for things like uh, labor and thinking and being of sound mind? So at the end of 10 days, if I look like I am better equipped to do those things than those who are eating all the royal food, then at least respond accordingly. Can we agree to that? He agrees. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate their royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables and said... To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So this is the strategy and it's like, it's like a fish in water, and it's like putting on lenses for the first time to see color. The first place we have to begin when we have a conversation about Babylon and the world that we live in is most of us are not aware that we are already Babylonians. Let me tell you a haunting truth. I think the scariest verse in the Bible takes place in the New Testament, and Jesus said it. And he says this, Many on that day when they close their eyes in death will walk up to the gates of heaven and will knock on the door and they will, And when I answer it, they will cry out, Lord, Lord, let us in. And Jesus says, many on that day, after they cry, let us in, I will say, I don't know who you are. He said, then many will say, what do you mean you don't know who we are? Uh, we know you, we're big fans of you. We remember Hume Lake remember that one song <laughs> you're a good good father remember me I was in the front row remember I was like remember the guy next to me was like the TV holder hand raised guy like this was him but I was like football field goal guy I was like up here right I was not even one hand right I'm like not the non-committal jock I was like two hands man I was in the front row Remember when we had the different tournaments? I, I won Kajabi. Like, I, I, was, I was like the king of Hume Lake. I went to, I went to church like three times a, three times a month, right? Well, I had soccer the fourth week. But you know what I mean? Like, I, I was participating in all these things. What, 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 what do you mean? I know exactly who you are. And then Jesus says, I don't know who you are. It seems like all you're doing is explaining how big of a fan you are of me as if that's what it takes to enter the kingdom of God, that you're just gonna be a fan of me. You, you, see, you look kind of Babylonian to me. You're not, you're not one of my kids. You, on the day you meet God face to face, you're not gonna get any kind of like um, an intelligence test, right? You're not gonna get a scan trying to find out how much you know about scripture. You're, you're not gonna you're, you're, you're get some test on how many weekends in church you went. That's not what's, you're not even gonna get a morality test about how good of a person you were. You'll get a DNA test. Are you a child of God or are you Babylonian? Are you part of God's kingdom or are you part of the kingdom of the world? Romans chapter one, the, third, the second most important person who's ever lived, Time Magazine said, is a man named Paul of Tarsus. And in Romans chapter one, he writes this. He says, there's two kinds of people on planet earth, those who worship creator and those who worship created things. The Bible keeps separating all of mankind, not into five groups, four groups, or even three groups, two groups. Babylonians and people of God's kingdom, children of God and enemies of God, those who worship the creator and those who worship created things. And it will be insufficient on that day to give the answer, I haven't thought about this. I haven't made a decision on this yet. Can I have a little bit more time? Is there any, can I phone a friend? Can my mom answer for me? That's not, that's not the way the system works. But we all have these intrinsic questions that if we're not careful, we're letting Babylon answer for us. Here's the four, here's the four questions that I wanna end with that we ask as people. It's the same questions you ask, right? Like um, I just got introduced to pickleball the other day, which is, did you know that, that personal injuries in America have gone up 7% this last year because of pickleball? Because, a game, because of a game named after a fermented vegetable? but you didn't know that. Seven percent. Anyway, when you learn any new sport, like when I started playing pickleball, you ask four questions and these are the same four questions that we ask in life. Uh, how does the game start? What are the rules? What's the objective? <laughs> and what happens when it's over, right? These are the four questions that we all ask. You have an answer to these in your soul, even if you didn't, if you've never thought about it externally before. And these questions encompass what we call your worldview. It's the lens that you see everything through. If you don't think that if you ask the question, where did I come from, if you don't think that the answer to the question, where do I come from, affects your everyday, you're Hezekite. It's we do, every single day. We think through this lens, this idea of origin. Where did I come from? Secondly, what 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 is what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? Thirdly, what is right and what is wrong? And lastly, where does a human go when they die? And the white noise we talked about this morning is that many of us will spend our whole lives numbing these questions, drinking away, the cogitating moments of going, I don't want to focus on that. And we will just find ourselves in the white noise of culture, never truly answering these questions. But you need to understand you have already answered them in your head. You already have a narrative of why you're here, of what gives you value. And the question is, are your answers Babylonian or are your answers of the kingdom of God? The Babylonian answer to the question of origin is this. The first question, just like you'd say, how does the game start? The question is, where do we come from? If you ask the question, where do I come from? I want you to think of what your answer is. If you answer it, well, I think I'm a product of an evolutionary, unguided process, and I'm simply DNA that's dancing to the tune of the music that was created inside of me. It's fatalistic. I do whatever my brain tells me to do. My brain is just something that fizzes. It's part of space rock that one day hit Earth. It combined with crystals on the back of these geo life forms from panspermia, and those grew up, and then that goo turned into me through the zoo. It was a cool process, and therefore, we should all treat each other with respect. What? right? We all came from fish, so rich people should give money to poor people. (laughs) What? How is that coherent? My great, 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 great grandfather was an amoeba. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. What? (laughs) That's not coherent. In every worldview you have, it has to both be consistent and it has to be coherent. And Babylon's worldview, the secular worldview, the non-Christian worldview is that you, friend, are a mistake. Listen, if you don't know that, you're not aware of what Babylon has seeped into culture. The Babylonian ethic of where you came from is that you are an accident of an unguided process. You do not have meaning. You do not have value. You do not have worth. You mean nothing. Ultimately, everything is going to expand into some heat death when all heat is used up in the universe from the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is gonna cool down to the thing where everything disappears. The Mona Lisa is only beautiful for a period of time. Then everything is gonna meet the exact same end. Everything is going to collapse and die and probably some kind of a star is going to blow and we're all just going to be gone. So what you do ultimately doesn't matter. doesn't have repercussions. And on that day, the, the mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler and the rapist and the child molester will all experience the exact same fate. There is no such thing as justice. There's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as reality. And there's no such thing as morality. This is Babylon. How you answer the question of where you came from has an important distinction on how you see all of life. Because if you are part of God's kingdom and not Babylon, the answer is very different. You are not a mistake. You were made on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose. You were knit together in your mother's womb by the God of the universe. He knows you, he knows every hair on your head. He has a specific and special meaning and purpose for your life. God is the only, th- when we read scripture, we find out that God breathed his own breath into us. And when he breathes that breath into us, that is where we get all this understanding of us caring about justice and morality and taking care of the sick and oppressed. That's where it comes from. But how you answer the question of origin means a lot about you. The second question we all have to ask is, what am I doing here? Babylon says what you're doing here is get rich or die trying. You've got a rat race to run. Try to get to the top. Do everything you can. Do you want to know something that's that's terrifying? The people in our world that are most likely to end their lives, there is a correlation between success and suicide. In fact, if you want to find the most dangerous demographic of people who are most likely to take their own life, you need look no farther than the very people that we prop up on a regular basis as celebrities and the rich and the famous. Why? Because at least you and I, who are not either, maybe you're rich, I don't know, who are not rich and famous, we at least can tell ourselves the story in Babylon of one day when I get enough money or enough followers or I have enough sex or I have enough relationships, then I'm going to be, is that your first time hearing the word sex? Is it junior high camp or high school? I forgot which one it is. Oh, high school camp, okay, 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 I got it. You have enough sex or enough relationships, you've told yourself this story that the reason you feel of no value, the reason you struggle with worth is because you haven't achieved that thing yet. You haven't gotten that promotion yet. You haven't made that much money yet. You haven't been that famous yet. You don't have enough followers yet. You don't have enough people thinking that you're awesome. But one day when you do, then you'll satisfy that immaterial desire that you have to be loved and to be known, to be satisfied. Can I just tell you what the end of that road looks like? Deep, 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 deep depression. Why? because you've never met anyone who has a love for money that has enough of it. You've never met someone with a drug addiction that one day goes, I think I'm good. You've never met someone with some kind of sexual addiction that goes, that's it. Why? Because we have to keep answering the question of what gives me value with more and more and what are we doing we are trying to fill an immaterial god-shaped desire in our hearts with material things what kind of a crazy person thinks that you can fill a deep desire to be loved by the god of the universe with cash <laughs> or relationships or anything like that it doesn't it, it doesn't i almost died it doesn't make <laughs> it doesn't make sense How we answer that question means something. The Bible says, if you ask Jesus, if you don't ask Babylon, you don't ask Nebuchadnezzar, what am I doing here? They'll answer, get rich or die trying. Be the best that you can be. Make sure, but our culture loves expressive individualism. That's modern day culture's stigma. I want you to be uniquely you and I want you to believe in something wholeheartedly and I want to make sure that you chase that and you be the most most unique and one-of-a-kind person you can possibly be. Do you know how hard it is in culture to be one-of-a-kind? It's crushing us. We don't even know how to be our own selves. We can't help it because we were born... Did you know that you weren't just made for community, you were made from it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We crave what people think about us all the time. And so we answer the question of origin differently than Babylon. We answer the question of meaning differently than Babylon. And we answer the question of what's right and wrong different than Babylon. The answer to Babylon's what is good and what is evil is whatever feels best for you. What is right is it's a heteronomous culture. It's when the most amount of us think that something's good, we think that's good. And when the most amount of us vote and think something's bad, then that thing is bad. The problem with that way of thinking is that it instantaneously makes morality into a group decision which means that we really can't stand here in the year 2023 and think that what Hitler did was intrinsically wrong because everyone in that time voted that it was okay. Do you really think that if Hitler conquered everything he meant to conquer, that then the Holocaust and the extermination of Jews and homosexuals and priests would have all been okay then? Of course you don't believe that, but this is what Babylon teaches you. Babylon teaches you, well, this is right for me and maybe something different is right for you. And if I feel this way about something, then it's good for me. And if I don't, then it's not good for me. And it's all about what I feel about things. Do you know how unsafe morality is like that? Do you know how ridiculously unsure your footing is if you think that morality is voted on? Do you realize with a simple majority vote then, tomorrow the most heinous crimes in our culture could be flipped on their head and we would all be sitting there going, well, I didn't... I guess the vote went against me. Now I guess all the things that I think are wrong are right, and all the things that I think are right are wrong. There is no stability. And you know what happens when Babylon wins out? Let me tell you. Did you know that in the 20th century, under atheistic communist regimes that were trying to exterminate God completely, 150 million innocent people were killed when they completely got rid of the idea of allowing God into government? Did you know that the largest bloodshed in human history that that is more bloodshed than the previous 19, 23 centuries combined is the communist regimes of the 20th century? Did you know 150 million people, Pol Pot, Mao, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and you're going, well, Hitler was a Christian. Read history. You think that Hitler worshipped a Jew? Have you ever thought through that process before? But this is what culture tells you. Oh no, it's all, all wars are religious. And look at how many wars Christians have started. There's a book called The Encyclopedia of the Wars. You should read it. Less than 3% of all wars ever had anything to do with religion at all. And less than 2% of anyone who's ever died in war had to do with religion, which means that secularism is responsible for 98% of it. Now, morality isn't based on body count, but at least here, the flip side of the conversation that Babylon is trying to teach you they're teaching you that religion is dangerous. They're teaching you that Christianity is some black stain on the mark of, of human history and nothing could be further from the truth. When you exterminate the theonomos, the law of God from a culture, and they say from here on out, whoever's in charge makes the rules, we see mass genocide, mass murder, commoditization of women, rape and pillaging, the rape of Nanking, just read history. Do not buy in to what Babylon is teaching you every single day when you go to school look and learn and research. This is what I had. Do you know how dumb I looked when I said Christians are the start of all wars and one simple, brilliant Christian apologist said, I'd like you to read the statistics and I never said that again. But I don't know because I'm mad as a hatter. I have Babylon coursing through my veins. I have to jump out of it for a second and go, whoa, what do I believe? And lastly, destiny. Where am I from? What does my life mean? What is good and what is bad? In God's culture, here's what's good and what is bad. What is good is in line with God's character and what is bad is out of line with God's character. Let me put it this way. Your responsibility, biblically speaking, is to be an ambassador for Christ. Your job, like if you had an ambassador for America that went to France, the ambassador for America should be and act and think American because he is, he, his The importance of his job is to promote American ideology and to be consistent with American thought. So we would send someone from America to be an ambassador who thinks American. They walk in, right, big cowboy boots, leather vest, mullet, rocking some like crazy country. I don't know, right? This is what my mind goes to. An ambassador is someone who appropriately represents where they're from. So what is good? Good is simply any time that we as people properly ambassad, properly represent the God that sent us here. What is sin? It's any time we misrepresent the consistent character of the God who sent us here. Don't make it bigger than it has to be. You see, in that culture, morality is as solid as a rock. It doesn't change. It doesn't morph because God's character never changes and it never morphs. That's why the Christian can say rape is always inappropriate. The taking of innocent human life is always inappropriate. Why? Because God's character never changes. That's why we're able to say without God, there is no such thing as good and evil. It's just popular vote. There's nothing you can stand on that makes any sense. And lastly, destiny. And this one's simple. In Babylon, you're here and then you're gone. Make much of your time. Seize the day. If you've got to step on some people to get ahead, who cares? It's all coming out in the wash. We're all going to arrive in a cosmic heat death, and when you die, there's nothing but the dirt above and below you. So don't worry about hurting people. Don't worry if you've lied. Don't worry if you've stolen, because on that day, there will be no separation between the good people and the bad people. There will be no justice. Those who take innocent human life will experience the exact same fate as those who help innocent people. Don't even worry about it. The Bible says when you close your eyes in death, you will meet the king. You will meet the one who knit you together. You will meet the God of the universe. You will see him face to face. And you will hear one of two things. You will either hear my son or my daughter, faithful servant, come in and find rest. Rest. Rest from from heaven to be part of my kingdom in freaking Babylon for 80 years, however long you live. Come in and find rest. I don't think God's going to say freaking as my own commentary, right? In parentheses. Again, don't make more than two. There's two. You're either going to hear in God's kingdom, well done, good and faithful servant, or away from me, I don't know who you are. You wanted Babylon. You're going to have Babylon forever you wanted a godless society, there is a godless society where you can participate in that forever. This is the distinction of heaven and hell. Apart from all of the cartoonish things that you see, the key difference between heaven and hell is in heaven God's there and in hell he's not. As C.S. Lewis once put it, ultimately God just gives everyone exactly what they asked for. Those who want more of God, there is heaven forever and those who want nothing to do with God, there is hell where there is no God. Destiny is different It means something. Your life has value and meaning. There's morality. There's goodness. You are from something. You are on purpose, by purpose, for purpose. Do not let Babylon tell you it's lies. That's where I found myself. And I want you to be aware that you're wearing glasses. And maybe today you find yourself indoctrinated by Babylon and you want to get out of it. Maybe you find yourself indoctrinated by Babylon and you find deep pleasure in it. And maybe some of you have found yourself in the kingdom of God being pulled by Babylon and some people in the kingdom of God wanting nothing to do with it. But in a room of this size, I'm sure that there's enough of us in all those categories. My prayer is that for the rest of this week, we would be honest about where we find ourselves and what part of Babylon we've bought into. Let's pray. God, as we search for meaning, as we search for the truths of morality, where we're from and where we're going, we just... We pray openly. and Maybe we don't even believe in you as God. Maybe we we don't have any interest in this or maybe we are so full of doubts that the concept of praying in this moment is the most ridiculous concept. But God, I would pray that even if that's where our hearts are, we would just say this simple prayer, even against, we know that you can hear our hearts, or at least that's what the Bible says. That's what these Christians around me believe. And so maybe just sending this prayer up, God, if you're there, would you stir something? God, if you're there, or maybe we're just so indoctrinated in Babylon and we go, God, would you show me if there's something I'm believing that's completely untrue about who I am, about what I'm worth, about where I'm going, about what's right and wrong? Would you, would you show me the places where I've eaten the, del- I've eaten the delicacy of Babylon so often that now I just crave that? I don't even crave you anymore. That I've bought hook, line, and sinker this notion of Babylonian living and I can't even separate it from the God who has called me to live differently. Would you demonstrate that to us? Would you use your Holy Spirit to convict us of those things and and show us where we need to change? In your name we pray, amen.